This episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Plus, get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Le Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, Activism from Democracy for America, and Redacted Tonight with comedian Lee Camp. I'm going to play a clip okay, of, uh, thank you, of, of President Obama at some roundtable that is being hosted by Chris Matthews. I don't know who else was on that roundtable, but I'm willing to bet that those tech people who want their intellectual property protected, that the other people, I don't know that there was any critics on there. Some small business people. Uh, supposedly, Elizabeth Warren came out and bashed the TPP. And let me tell you what's going on now. Elizabeth Warren is trying to do, and the Democrats in the Senate are trying to do, what Ted Cruz did with Republicans in the House. Now, Ted Cruz is not coming to the rescue. Even though he, uh, President Obama is a dictator, You're not going to hear Ted Cruz say we're not going to give fast-track authority to President Obama or to Hillary Clinton, for that matter. Remember, this this TPA, the fast-track authority, exists for three to six years. So it's into the next administration either way. So Elizabeth Warren comes out and says, this trade deal, you're negotiating it in secret. You're not even allowing Congress people to know what's in it before they give you this authority to basically just ram it through. We don't do this with anything else. Talk about jamming it down our throats. And President Obama had this to say on this panel. It's it's long. Come up with a specific. Come up with one measure that he's talking about, and he won't because they won't show us what's in it because that none of this is the case. This is about some fanciful notion of we've got to isolate China, even though I don't even think this does it based upon what I've seen. Secondhand. That the country of origin can have up to like 50 to 60% of what the final product is. Um, Country of origin, I should say, can be deemed to just have established 40% of what the product is. So if you're Vietnam and you're in this deal, you can get 60%. From China. So it's all about isolating China. It's ridiculous. But in the end, it's really just about protecting pharmaceutical uh, profits. Let's play this audio. And uh, I love Elizabeth. Uh, We're allies on a whole host of issues. Uh, But she's wrong on this. And uh, let me be very clear about uh, my views on trade generally and why this is so important. Um, Stop. Now, I want you to listen to this and understand that his views on trade generally are wholly irrelevant. Because we have no way of knowing that this so-called trade deal comports with these views. And let me also remind you, this guy on the campaign trail in 2008 said he was going to fix NAFTA, the problems that were in NAFTA, sent up uh, Goolsby to Canada to tell the Canadians, don't worry. So when it comes to trade, 
President Obama is on very shaky ground as to whether or not he walks his own talk. I'm not somebody who believes in trade just for trade's sake. Uh, you know, I come from a state, Illinois, that was devastated by uh, the loss of manufacturing in many small towns. Uh, I think that we had a stretch of a couple of decades where, uh, in part because of globalization, you had manufacturing moving uh, to other places in search of low wages. Pause it. No environmental. He won't say the words NAFTA here, I don't think, either. Because he didn't want to remind people about that incident. Standards, no labor standards. Uh, so trade deals haven't always worked for us. But what I've also always believed is that it's important for us to be able to export our goods, to make sure our businesses are competitive. That's good for American workers. That's good for American businesses. It's good for America's small business. So when I came into office, I said, what kind of trade deal would I like to see? How would we revamp how we've done trade to make it work for America? And we know that we'd have strong enforceable labor standards for other countries that we trade with. We'd have strong environmental standards with the countries that we trade with. We'd make sure that we have access to their markets just like they've got access to ours so that it was fair and reciprocal. And we decided to start trying to craft a new kind of trade deal in the largest market in the world because 95% of customers for U.S. businesses is going to be outside of the United States and if we want to compete and create jobs here in the United States we got to be there and the fastest growing most populous region in the world is in the Asia Pacific region so we've pulled together 11 countries to come up with a high standard enforceable trade provision that has unprecedented labor standards, unprecedented un environmental standards, fixes a lot of the problems that you had in things like Stop. NAFTA. Stop. Fixes a lot of problems you have in, like, NAFTA. Really? Of course, this has nothing to do with the same parties as to NAFTA. But here's the bottom line. All of these standards, frozen. Once these standards are established, they are frozen because you are not allowed without paying off industry to change these standards or raise them in any way. So even if we are to believe that there is some baseline provided for labor and environmental standards as the global as the globe warms, <laughs> you cannot raise those environmental standards. As problems arise, you cannot raise those standards without paying, essentially, for the privilege to corporations. Continue. And ultimately, I would not be putting this forward if I did, was not absolutely certain that this was going to be good for American workers. Pause it. Now. In other words, we're not going to tell you what's in there, but trust me. Understandably, folks in labor and some progressives are suspicious generally because of the experiences they saw in the past. <clears throat> but... Uh, my point is, don't fa fight the last war. Wait and see what we actually have in this deal before you make those judgments. Because what I know is <clears throat> that if we are going to succeed as an economy, we're already about 11 million of the high-paying jobs. I don't want to hear the, the rest of the BS. Uh, wait and see. <clears throat> How about showing it? Why make people vote on fast-track authority now? So it's 
it's trust us. But, you know, you don't believe I'm not going to crash out of the car? Give me the keys. We'll find out. Jobs in the United States are directly related to exports uh, overseas. And it's not just big businesses. It's small businesses like are represented around this table. Then we've got to be able to craft the kinds of trade deals that I'm talking about. Ah, all right. So we the answer we got there was no answer. No answer. Polished no answer. But that, but that's just stunning, the notion of... I feel like you just can't underline that enough. Wait and see what's in this bill that I'm demanding an up or down sight unseen vote on. So we sat and talked, then we walked and talked Now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a trade agreement that has a number of issues. Uh, it really affects our national sovereignty. Corporations can sue us and take us to an international court uh, where they can overthrow our local environmental laws, labor laws. And again, if you're a conservative, you should be outraged by that. How dare they tell you what to do in Texas, right? It's taking away U.S. sovereignty, Texas sovereignty, all the state sovereignty. Um, but, of course, President Obama is in favor of it anyway. Look, if you're paying attention, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. President Obama and the establishment Democrats are massively pro-corporation. So they'll do some good things. Oh, like, oh, we'll change health care a little bit. Oh, finance. <laughs> we'll throw a fig leaf on it while it's still a ticking time bomb, right? we got a new uh, good face on all this, and we'll call it change. We'll call it historic. But, you know, the marching band uh, goes on, right? So... Corporations still getting all the breaks, and that's built into this uh, trade agreement. Now, how do we know? Well, it turns out, now there's many different reasons, the details of which have leaked and I just told you about. The other reason is you can tell who's on what side to give you a sense of uh, who, who's fighting for justice here and the American citizens and who's fighting for the rich and the elite. Well, it turns out that the rich and the elite decided they were going to get together and sign a letter. Uh, dozens of New York City's most powerful and richest uh, people got together and signed a letter to the state's congressional delegation telling him, make sure that you support President Obama on this. Now, these are guys who are not used to supporting President Obama. But on this, he's on our side. He's on the billionaire's side. So be cool. Give him whatever executive authority that he wants. I know you've... Claim that you hate executive authority and everything else, but here all the Republicans are lockstep behind the billionaires saying, yes, President Obama, take any executive authority you want on this trade deal. So, who signed this letter? Get a load of this. Fox News mogul Rupert Murdoch signed the letter. So does Stephen Schwartzman, who once compared the prospect of raising taxes on private equity magnates like himself to Hitler's invasion of Poland. John Paulson, the Republican mega-donor who made a fortune betting against the housing market with Goldman Sachs, is also signing. So is vulture investor Wilbur Ross, who spent six figures to support GOP nominee Mitt Romney in 2012 and has backed such conservative hardliners as Senator Tom Cotton 
and former Representative Alan West. Now, you think these mega donors to the Republican Party are supporting Obama because it's the right thing to do and they feel patriotic? <laughs> no, please, please understand. When it comes to issues like this, the economy, who's going to win, who's going to lose uh, these economic benefits, President Obama is not remotely progressive. These billionaires and millionaires, they love him because he does exactly what uh, they want him to do. I got more for you. Other signatories include real estate billionaire Jerry Spire, who recently attended a $100,000 per person fundraiser to bolster former uh, Florida Governor Jeb Bush's White House hopes. The host of that event, private equity kingpin Henry Kravis, also signed. Now, to be fair, those guys are all billionaires, but some non-billionaires, just uh, millionaires, also signed the letter. Let me tell you about that. In fact, Huffington Post says, Not everyone who signed the letter is a billionaire. Some are merely millionaire CEOs like Goldman Sachs' Lloyd Blankfein, who presided over the bank's federal bailout and a $550 million settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission over housing trades. Fellow bailout recipient Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase also signed the letter. So all those giant banks who cry, Oh, Obama, he's so mean to us. They turn around and they tell the Republicans, Hey, make sure you support Obama. Actually, he's totally on our side. If I was president, uh -huh. I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. They go back to work on Monday. If I was president, if I was president, if I was president, yeah. Instead of spending billions on the war, I can use that money so I can feed the poor. Cause I know some so poor. When it rains, that's when they shower, scream and fight the power. That's when the vulture devours if I was president. Here's a story that appeared on my birthday, 11-14-2013, after the people at WikiLeaks again released some of the secret information about these treaties, which will change life in all these countries that are agreeing to these things, with the voters of those countries never being allowed to know what's being argued about. Um, this is, as I said, from a Forbes article, and of, cor of course Forbes is a, is a very pro-business magazine, uh, from 11-14-2013, entitled Outcry Follows Leak of Secret Trade Negotiations, from the beginning of the piece, quote, With two previous versions leaked, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was already causing rumblings of concern, but WikiLeaks's release this week of the latest draft has brought controversy to a peak. The deal, the story says, is currently being negotiated in secret between the U.S., Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam, and there are proposals to extend it further. However, the story says, the 30,000-page draft agreement published by WikiLeaks reveals intellectual property protection being broadened in an astonishing number of areas, from strengthening the rights of pharmaceutical companies to allowing the patenting of plants and animals. It is unsurprisingly supported by more than 600 large corporations, from Nike and Walmart to General Electric and Pfizer, end quote. The story points out that while the governments of all these countries say this will be great for trade and make everyone's lives better, which is what they've said about every other trade agreement that's been passed, and we all know how those have turned out, um, the story says, quote, 
Meanwhile, over 80 law professors have written to President Obama, members of Congress, and the U.S. Trade Representative calling for public oversight of the intellectual property proposals. They, too, are concerned about the way the process is being conducted. Quote, and this is from the um, piece written by the law professors to the president, quote, Unfortunately, TPP is not being negotiated through an inclusive process. On the contrary, the administration has taken extraordinary efforts to keep these deliberations secret from the general public. The United States, they write, reportedly promoted and signed an agreement with other TPP member countries that precludes official release of any proposals for the text of the agreement until four years after it's concluded. End quote. The Electronic Frontier Foundation described many of the TPP proposals as, quote, an anti-user wish list of industry-friendly policies, end quote. The TPP allows something called an investor state dispute settlement, which was part of other trade agreements that I've been against in the past, which essentially allows companies to sue governments if they don't like policies, regulations, and whatnot in those countries, and they believe that those policies or regulations impact their ability to do business, and then the dispute is taken to like a group of lawyers who litigate on these things on an international level, right? So if, if one company in the Netherlands, for example, tells Canada that not allowing a certain additive into gasoline produced by the Dutch company impacts their business, they can take it to a sort of an arbitration court, and if Canada loses... They either might have to allow it or they might have to compensate that company. This is becoming pretty commonplace, giving corporations the right to essentially sue for damages if countries and voters in those countries, you know, create laws or restrictions that impact anyone's ability to do business that's a part of this agreement. It's one of the things that unites some liberals with conservatives on this. You know, there's sort of, there's sort of a pro-Wall Street group in both the Democratic and Republican parties in the U.S. that are for these kinds of things. But then there are people on the farther left and the farther right that scream bloody murder over sovereignty questions. The idea is that these supersede the rights of, of Americans, well, or Canadians or Australians or Europeans to change these things. And that there should be no rules that supersede in a democracy the rights of the voters in that country. There was a story that appeared in the New York Times uh, just a couple of days ago, March 25th, 2015, about these lawsuits that could be you know, filed as a part of these trade deals. This one's entitled Trans-Pacific Partnership Seen as Door for Foreign Suits Against U.S. by Jonathan Wiseman March, um, Dateline Washington, from the beginning of the piece, quote, an ambitious 12-nation trade accord pushed by President Obama would allow foreign corporations to sue the United States government for actions that undermine their investment, quote-end-quote, expectations and hurt their business, according to a classified document. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, a cornerstone of Mr. Obama's remaining economic agenda, would grant broad powers to multinational companies operating in North America, South America, and Asia. Under the accord, still under negotiation but nearing completion, companies and investors would be empowered to challenge regulations, rules, government actions and court rulings, federal, state or local, before tribunals organized under the World Bank or the United Nations. Backers of the emerging trade accord, the story says, which is supported by a wide variety of business groups and favored by most Republicans, say that it is in line with previous agreements that contain similar provisions. End quote. In other words... 
is no different than the North American Free Trade Agreement, nor different than CAFTAM, no different than the GATT stuff. In other words, the trade agreements that many of us have pointed out have done no good. I mean, bad things. And they're basically saying, oh, no worse than those. From later in this piece, um, the New York Times, by the way, was working with WikiLeaks on some of these releases. And so from the middle of the piece, it talks about one of the controversial uh, parts of the trade agreement that was found out once WikiLeaks released it to the public and says, quote, the chapter in the draft of the trade deal dated January 20th, 2015 and obtained by the New York Times in collaboration with the group WikiLeaks is certain to kindle opposition from both the political left and the political right. The sensitivity of the issue is reflected in the fact that the cover mandates that the chapter not be declassified until four years after the Trans-Pacific Partnership comes into force or trade negotiations end, end quote. In other words, you don't get to know about this before it's voted on. You don't get to know about this until it's been enforced so long, it would be tough to undo it. Now, here's the part that should upset everyone. Not only is this a secret from the general public, but even the representatives in the House of Representatives, for example, have not been able to see the actual wording of the agreement, and they're screaming about it, too. It kind of shows how, once again, we're in the midst of changes going on in the governmental system, where more and more it's the executive branch of government that matters in the United States. And the Senate and the House of Representatives, in part due to their own lack of wanting to take responsibility, have less and less responsibility. It's the difference between what the Constitution gives them in terms of responsibility and what 200 and some years of actual practice has decided that they have. One of the stories I have has a quote from Representative Alan Grayson, the Florida Democrat, talking about this exact problem with secrecy and these trade agreements. And he, he says, quote, I'm not happy about it. It's part of a multi-year campaign of deception and destruction. Why do we classify information, he asks. It's to keep sensitive information out of the hands of foreign governments. In this case, foreign governments already have this information. They're the people the administration is negotiating with. The only purpose of classifying this information is to keep it from the American people. End quote. And this brings back an interesting piece from a couple of years ago from Elizabeth Warren. Does that name ring a bell? It's funny because people who listen to this program always know who this person is. I'll bring it up in the general public, and it's amazing how many people don't know. Elizabeth Warren is one of these politicians that if I could stand politicians, I would be tempted to be friendly towards. I like um, non-establishment people, but I don't trust these politicians because I've been burned many times like many of you have. It's one thing to say all the right things. It's another thing to vote for these people and then watch when they get into office how they just ignore you know, their policy positions. But at least based on what she says, Elizabeth Warren is one of these people that's opposing these kind of things, opposing the secrecy, opposing the fact that the average Democratic voter in a Democratic country seems to be emasculated in terms of having any real say in the direction that things are evolving towards. She wrote a letter to the guy who's um, the lead dog on some of these trade negotiations for the White House, a guy named Michael Froman, a guy who used to work for Citigroup, by the way. So this shows you who the people are involved in some of these negotiations. Now, Elizabeth Warren is one of these people, by the way, that thinks Citigroup is so potentially dangerous in terms of the amount of power it has that she's publicly suggested that maybe it should be broken up. 
So that shows you that she's she's doing some tilting at windmills herself right now and saying some interesting things. So she writes this letter to Froman way back on June 13th, 2013. And essentially, in the middle of the letter, points out what we kind of all are, are understanding the more you read about this, that the big argument for secrecy on the part of the administration and the other governments around the world negotiating this is that if the stipulations were made public, the people in the countries that are democracies would oppose these things. So putting you back in your role as the think tank consultant helping these companies facilitate getting from point A to point B. You tell them, don't tell the public what's going on, right? So in the middle of Elizabeth Warren's note to Michael Froman, the assistant to the president on June 13, 2013, she says, quote, I have heard the argument that transparency would undermine the administration's policy to complete the trade agreement because public opposition would be significant. This argument is exactly backwards, she writes. If transparency would lead to widespread public opposition to a trade agreement, then that trade agreement should not be the policy of the United States. I believe in transparency and democracy, and I think the U.S. trade representative should too. End quote. In a piece written on January 6, 2015 for Global Research, independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who is a socialist, by the way, wrote about how upset he is that not only are the people of the country cut out of knowing about the deal, but as the Florida House of Representatives member we mentioned earlier was saying, that the government officials are cut out of the deal. Once again, we're seeing the stakes raised. For some time now, we've seen the electorate cut out of you know, some of these deals. Now we're watching more and more of the actual government officials that are voted into power by the electorate cut out of the deal. Sanders writes, quote, It is incomprehensible to me that the leaders of major corporate interests are actively involved in the writing of the TPP, while the elected officials of this country have little or no knowledge as to what is in it. He continues, quote, Members of Congress must have the opportunity to read what is in the TPP and closely analyze the potential impact this free trade agreement would have on the American people long before the Senate votes to give the president fast-track trade promotion authority. End quote. Now, that's another question. For those who don't know, fast-track trade authority is something that's been used in all these trade agreements. What it essentially does is take the ability of the legislative branch of this country to change any of the agreements out of their hands and forces them to either vote up or down on the whole thing. Now, this does two things. One, it simply cuts them out of the debate. If they want a free trade agreement, they have to vote for the things they don't like with the things that they do. But the other thing that it does is it eliminates that whole period where the Congress actually discusses the provisions in the agreement. With fast-track authority, there isn't a debate. So nobody ever gets up there and, once again, says on C-SPAN, what's in it? If you don't have fast-track authority, then you can never comply with that rule that says this has to be kept secret for four years after it's passed, right? Because those secrets would come out during the debate. With fast-track authority, there is no debate.
This program is sponsored by Casper. They're a company that sells high-quality memory foam mattresses on the internet, which sounds crazy at first, but more and more awesome the more you think about it. So let's say you need a mattress. First of all, you don't have to leave your house, but maybe you worry that you need to awkwardly lay on a mattress in a showroom for about 30 seconds while a salesman watches you to get a good sense of what it's going to be like to sleep on it all night, every night, for the next several years. Uh, I mean, personally, that seems like an odd thing to think, and Casper actually has a much better idea. They let you try their mattresses risk-free for 100 days, and they don't even watch you while you sleep. That way, you know for sure whether you found your new soul mattress. So you don't have to leave your couch to order, and you get to try it for 100 days, but the awesomeness continues because they've taken the savings of not having to pay for a showroom and all that jazz and made their mattresses available at a shockingly fair price. Pricing starts at $500 for a twin-size mattress and goes up to only $950 for a full-size king. If you've been shopping for a high-quality mattress anytime recently, you recognize what a good deal that is. And to help you out even more, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. You know by this time, probably, that the Senate failed in its first attempt to grant fast track authority to the president, to complete the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement with about a dozen Asian Pacific nations. They will try again, apparently, this week. Fast Track Authority allows the uh, administration to submit this agreement, this uh, multilateral agreement, to uh, the Congress for merely an up-and-down vote, allowing no amendments. And um, the Controversy over the agreement is multifold. First, as we discussed on this program last week, the the um, restrictions covering the ways in which Congress people can actually see the text being negotiated uh, very much resemble the way um, members of the Intelligence Committee were allowed to view the uh, secret legal opinions regarding the CIA's detainee interrogation programs, no notes, no staffers, can't talk about it outside the the special room. And so some of the critics have accused the administration of keeping the text for all intents and purposes secret, which President Obama, you may have noticed, denied vociferously in attacks on his critics, including Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, whom he called just wrong for her criticisms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which also contains a um, a provision called Investor State Dispute Settlement, which allows corporations whose profit expectations have been diminished or damaged by laws or regulations of member states to sue those governments, state or local governments, federal government in our case, in special tribunals whose judges are lawyers who otherwise work for those corporations. The president, as I say, has been on the war path against his critics, most of them his fellow Democrats. You know, the professional liberals are at it again. Been doing this since I don't know when. They act like they don't even know I'm their best friend. 
But in the end game, you gotta know your friend's name. We got a trade deal on the table. You've probably heard about it on cable. Or better yet, on the internet. I'll let you know what's in it. You know, what I'm able. But when I say we've learned the lessons of NAFTA, those folks to my left really do have to cool their laughter. After the vote, I may have to take the professional liberals down just a peg. Because I am too proud to beg. might arouse the progressive heart of a party, the part that's just getting too aggressive for its own damn good. You gotta take your cap and doff it when a company expects a profit, when regulations or laws turn out to be flaws to cause a pause in that expectation. Of course they can sue to stop it. If you can't get the profit you expect, the whole economy is wrecked. There go the jobs, the left demands, that's what they don't understand. And right now, we can't explain it. The time to debate it is when it's too late to change it. The time to drink is when all you've gotten the model is a drag. And yes, I am too proud to beg. You know, it takes an artisan to craft a measure this bipartisan. And nobody likes his handiwork spoiled, the waters roiled by some liberals playing hard-boiled. The trade cake is baked, and if the union's belly ache, let them eat steak. This is just a delayed wait for the wing of the party that has to break before it can fly straight. Yes, this is how the hope dream ends. You gotta be nicer to your enemies than your friends. Because wrong-headed treaties may be boners. The presidential libraries still need donors. You know, someone's going to give an arm and a leg. So i got to be too proud to beg. Elizabeth Warren is continuing. Uh, as often as President Obama calls her out, she calls him out. And I'm finding this fascinating, this internecine warfare, this, this uh, kind of almost interfamilial warfare uh, between Elizabeth Warren and President Obama. He, he said, oh, she's just a politician. Like, really? And so she has replied, saying, you know, with this, uh, along with Rosa DeLauro, uh, yeah, uh, for a piece in the Boston Globe, and the headline, who is writing the TPP? And she says this is being sold as a free trade deal, but only five of the treaty's 29 draft chapters reportedly deal with traditional trade issues. While reducing traditional barriers to trade with countries like Japan will facilitate some international commerce, the TPP is about more than reducing tariffs. She said, who is writing the TPP? The text has been classified and the public isn't permitted to see it, but 28 trade advisory committees have been intimately involved in the negotiation. Of the 566 committee members, 480 of them, 85%, are senior corporate executives or representatives from industry lobbying groups. Many of the advisory committees are made up entirely of industry representatives. A rigged process, Elizabeth Warren writes in the Boston Globe, leads to a rigged outcome. 
These panels, she's talking about the investor state dispute settlement panels. These panels can force taxpayers to write huge checks to big corporations with no appeals. Workers, environmentalists, and human rights advocates, by the way, don't get that special right. So workers can't sue governments, can't sue taxpayers. So the, you know, the, the essentially slave labor in Vietnam or Brunei or wherever it may be, they can't sue us. The people who live in Vietnam or Brunei or wherever it may be, whose, whose uh, areas are being polluted and destroyed by, by, you know, big industry that's moving in, operating to a different set of uh, health and safety standards and environmental standards than are required here in the United States. They can't sue us for their country being destroyed, for their homes being made poisonous, for their children having birth defects, for their own cancer. They can't sue us. The the uh, the people living there, and and the workers, you know, n- n- nobody basically can sue us except the corporations, and the only thing they can sue us for is lost profits. This is me talking now, not Elizabeth Warren, but back to Elizabeth Warren. See, they can sue us for, no, this is me again, they can sue us for lost profits based on our passing, or any of these countries, any of these 12 countries, passing laws that, quote, restrain or restrict trade. Now, typically we refer to laws that restrain or restrict trade as regulations, right? You may not sell poisonous things. You must, you must sell things that meet certain minimum standards. Your food must not kill people. Your drugs must actually be effective. But as Elizabeth Warren writes in today's uh, Boston Globe, most Americans don't think of the minimum wage or anti-smoking regulations as trade barriers. Right? So we've got a minimum wage law in the United States. And, they, you know, Egypt, uh, Egypt raised their minimum wage... And a foreign corporation sued them under one of the one of the trade deals that they were part of. This, under this this so-called international settlement dispute system, Philip Morris ha- is suing right now Australia and Uruguay. This is this has to do with the uh, the uh, WTO. Why? Because both those countries have packaging rules that say you can't put brand names on your outside of your cigarettes. I mean, you can put the brand name, but you can't put the logos, you can't put the fancy graphics, and you got to put pictures of people, you know, being being killed off by tobacco. And so they're suing the countries. Philip Morris is suing the countries, saying you're causing us to lose profits. Food safety rules are included in this. We have some pretty stringent food safety rules here in the United States. Vietnam doesn't. We sign this deal, we all go to the lowest common denominator? Well, we don't know for sure because the administration will not release the text of the TPP for us to examine. They just want Congress to say yes or no, and then they can read it, apparently. Doctors Without Borders has come out and said the TPP is a threat to global health. Stephen Vernon, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is, yeah. Uh, no, Dean Marshbein, president of Doctors Without Borders USA, wrote this. And he says, lost in the political discussions over the passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, a trade agreement currently being negotiated in secret between the U.S. and 11 other Pacific Rim nations, and I would add, you know, hundreds of corporations, is the very real negative impact it could have on global health. Lost in the discussion is the real impact. 
Doctors Without Borders, the, they're actually based in France. The name is Médecins Sans Frontières. Works in over 60 countries, and our medical teams rely on access to affordable medicine and vaccine. We are deeply concerned that the TPP in its current form will lock in unsustainable drug prices, block or delay the availability of affordable generic medicines, and price millions of people out of much-needed health care. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Well, in a surprising setback for President Obama, senators from his own party blocked debate on a bill that would have given the president fast-track authority to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. The Senate voted 52 to 45, short of the 60 votes needed. The vote marked a victory for Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, Elizabeth Warren, and other critics of the TPP. Fast Track would grant the president authority to negotiate the TPP and then present it to Congress for a yes or no vote with no amendments allowed. The failure to win the necessary votes came after pro-trade Democrats, including Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, insisted the, that Fast Track be bundled together with three other trade bills. This is Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking after the vote. What we've just witnessed here is the Democratic Senate shut down the opportunity to debate the top economic priority of the Democratic President of the United States. The TPP is a 12-nation trade pact that would encompass 40 percent of the global economy and is being negotiated in secret between the United States and 11 Latin American and Asian countries. Critics say the deal would hurt workers, undermine regulations, and expand corporate power. To talk more about the significance of the Senate vote, we go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Lori Wallach, Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, author of The Rise and Fall of Fast-Track Trade Authority. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Lori. So what happened? The president's own party said no to him in the Senate? <laughs> well, in a big picture, it's a sign of how broad the opposition to fast track is, that there's even a close vote on trade, much less a defeat of a trade bill in the Senate. The Senate's normally a very comfortable place for a bad trade vote. What happened yesterday was a fight over two things related to the trade bill, but not exactly the trade bill. First, on June 1, the highway and infrastructure bills sunset. So if the Senate doesn't bring those up and, and reauthorize them, 
in the middle of prime construction season, tens of thousands of construction workers are going to get laid off because a bill was allowed to expire. There are other things that end June 1 that Senator Reid said, why the rush on fast track? Let's do the things that are expiring. We can debate fast track when we come back in June. Second thing had to do with what pieces of trade legislation. There are four separate bills, and what Senator Reid said is, we're not going to let you just vote on fast track and leave all the other pieces, some of which have to do with enforcement of trade agreements, some of which have to do with benefits for the people who, are, who lose their jobs to trade agreements. We're not going to let you leave those at the curb. And basically, Majority Leader McConnell said, I'm in charge, you're not anymore, I'm doing it my way. And so in the face of my way or the highway, they sent him to the highway. <laughs> but it's not over. It's going to come back up for another repackaging. It was a very important signal because the whole point of going to the Senate was to show, oh, Fast Track has momentum. Because in the House, it's in real, honest-to-God trouble. In the Senate, it's more like skirmishes that show how extremely well the public has done in making their senators as well as their house members wary of doing this trade vote but in the senate eventually they will get the vote in the house different piece of business and so folks who don't want to see fast track the house is the place to focus but for the next couple of weeks call your senators because it's an interesting food fight well, Lori, but the president expended quite a bit of capital on this, uh, calling out some senators by name, saying they were stuck in the past in the past debates. Uh, what do you uh, what do you make of uh, uh, the almost universal turn against him on this issue, at least at this point? I think the the attacks that he's waged, particularly on Senator Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, but on others, as all the critics are uninformed. Seeing the president who wouldn't get angry and attack the pharmaceutical companies that wanted to kill his health care bill, the Wall Street giants who tried to derail re-regulation, he's really just not been ever willing to go out after folks. And then to see him go in such a disdainful and personal way after someone like Elizabeth Warren is, of all things, uninformed and unintelligent, that really... All that's done is put starch in the shorts of a lot of her colleagues. So I do believe that there were a variety of senators who on some level were sort of teetering on the fence, and the president conducting himself in that way seems to have created a sense of solidarity amongst the Democratic well, senators, Laurie, including we, those who are not with us on trade. We wanted to go to a clip of President Obama on MSNBC um, responding to criticism from Democratic Senator Warren, who says the TPP would undermine U.S. sovereignty and help the rich get richer. I love Elizabeth. Uh, we're allies on a whole host of issues, uh, but she's wrong on this. Everything I do has been focused on how do we make sure the middle class is getting a fair deal. Now, I would not be doing this trade deal if I did not think it was good right. for the middle class. And when you hear folks make a lot of suggestions uh, about how bad this trade deal is, when you dig into the facts, they are wrong. So they are wrong, he says. Um, if you can explain why you're so concerned about this, Laurie. Well, first of all, if he's so confident that we're all wrong and he's got it right, he should release the darn text of the TPP under negotiation for six years, almost completed. Let the public read it and come to their own point of view. 
given that some of the chapters have leaked, in fact, on the merits, Senator Warren is right, the president is wrong. We know that the TPP will make it easier to offshore our jobs. Why? Because thanks to WikiLeaks, we know it includes an expanded version of the same incentives to offshore jobs in its investment chapter that were found in the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Those are rules that the Cato Institute, a free trade libertarian think tank, calls a subsidy on offshoring, on lowering the risk premium of offshoring. Specific rules. We've all seen them with our own eyes. It's the old NAFTA rules for offshoring. Or the Obama administration has admitted the labor and environmental standards they're now saying are new, improved, amazing, are what Bush had in his last four agreements. And those are standards as well as not being beloved by a single environmental or labor group, i.e. the groups that have a specialty in workers' rights and the environment oppose the agreement and say the standards aren't sufficient. In addition, the Bush standards are in the TPP are explicitly reviewed in the end of last year by the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, and found to totally fail to change conditions on the ground in the countries where they're applied. These are things we actually know about the agreement. On the financial issue that Senator Warren has raised, why do we know that's true? In addition to the fact that most of the other TPP countries are complaining about that issue and worried about what it would mean for them, to have these limits on financial regulation. In addition, parts of that chapter have leaked. We can see, for instance, that the TPP would ban the use of capital controls, the very policies now the IMF is telling countries to use to avoid speculative swishes of money in and out or the growth of speculative bubbles that turn into crises. This we have seen. So on the merits, she is right, the president is wrong, but the notion that the attack from the president is on the messenger versus defending the agreement, making it public, is particularly aggrieving. It's a choice, it's a situation they put themselves in by deciding to side with the 500 corporate trade advisors over the last six years instead of implementing the trade reform promises President Obama made in 2008. The labor movement, the environmental groups, everyone's just worked incredibly hard through the TPP negotiations to try and get the administration to adopt the vision that the president had as a candidate. And instead, they doubled down on the same old, same old. So, of course, the entire Democratic base is on the warpath against fast track for the TPP. It's a future we will not tolerate for ourselves, for our families, for our country. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, reject Medicare cuts and TPP fast track. 
the Trans-Pacific Partnership is awful for basically all of the reasons. The newly added awful that Republicans are trying to sneak in last minute is a special brand of mean and unnecessary. To quote-unquote offset a Democratic requirement that those losing their jobs to the TPP would somehow be compensated, the GOP wants a $700 million cut to Medicare. Think about that for a moment. These are their core constituents, supposedly. And while repeal Obamacare remains their rallying cry, they're looking to chop almost a billion dollars from the program that keeps millions of seniors hovering tentatively just above the poverty line. It is unconscionable. Democracy for America has a petition titled U.S. Senate Reject Medicare Cuts and Reject Fast Track, posted at their website, democracyforamerica.com, as well as Daily Co's diaries under the Trans-Pacific Partnership tag. The Senate is about to vote again on fast-tracking this disastrous trade agreement. Dual-action petitions like this one opposing both the bill in its entirety and a specific provision cover the just-in-case scenario that the TPP passes. After adding your name to the DFA action petition, take the advice from the Daily Co's poster and use contactingthecongress.org to, quote, get in touch with your senator's offices now and tell them not to support TPP in general, but especially if it uses seniors' benefits to pay for it, unquote. The only thing worse than signing away jobs and regulatory authority on almost every industry is doing it while also denying medical care to the elderly. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing further economic, climate, and healthcare disasters matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about protecting Medicare and stopping the TPP via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Finally! Finally! After three years of basically acting like it didn't exist, the President and Congress are talking about TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Even though I and other media, alternative media nutjobs have been talking about it for three years, the mainstream media just found out about it. In fact, a recent press conference, uh, at a recent press conference, they covered the Japanese Prime Minister speaking about the trade deal. That was a really long answer, but I felt pretty strongly about it. First of all, on TPP. All right, we're going to break away. Uh, the president just spent... <laughs> Boom! Wolf Blitzer swatted that out of there like a big fat basketball. Thank goodness the wolf was there to blitzkrieg in and shut it down. But President Obama also went on Chris Matthews' show Hardball to talk about it. Obama came prepared for the furious frothing of Matthews. When, when he first arrived, he wore a saliva-resistant uniform, <laughs> normally reserved to protect against rattlesnakes. But uh, he also had harsh words for critics. Wait and see what we actually have in this deal before you make those judgments. 
God, I'd love to, but you won't let anyone see it! Obama is treating this trade deal like a four-year-old who's just caught a firefly in his hands. I can't let you see it or it might get away. You'll just have to trust me. As Congressman Alan Grayson said, it is ironic that the government thinks it's all right to have a record of every single call that an American makes, but not all right for an American citizen to know what sovereign powers the government is negotiating away. Having seen, having seen what I've seen, I would characterize it as a punch in the face to the middle class of America. But I'm not allowed to tell you why. <laughs> They can't tell us who's hitting us in the face. This is like a bad glory hole situation. Ow! It's like, ow, ow, who is that? Who is that? If only Obama would listen to this guy. Corporate lobbyists oftentimes involved in negotiating these trade agreements, but the AFL-CIO hasn't been involved. Ordinary working people have not been involved. Now, you might think that guy looks like Obama. But as everyone knows, once you become president, you pull back your face, shed your skin, and become a different person who loves highly secretive trade deals. But Obama tells us that American workers will be fine. We, we can uh, create things that other countries can't create. Like 13-year-old twerking videos and bacon and cheese sandwiches that have fried chicken as the bread. We'll, we'll just base our entire economy around those things. It's IT, it's talent, it's innovation. That's the kind of stuff that we can sell all around the world. Uh, Mr. President, have you walked outside? Not everybody out there is cut out for talent or innovation. We've got a bumper crop of morons, dum-dums, and douche-diddlers, and unless you consider figuring out how to get high off an empty can of whipped cream innovation, then we're not exactly going to win the global market. In order for us to be able to sell our beef in Japan, we've got to be able to pry open those markets. Yes, we need to sell our beef in Japan. According to the Department of Agriculture, in 2010, for example, we exported 2.3 billion pounds of beef and veal. We imported 2.3 billion pounds of beef and veal. The same amounts. And you might be wondering, why don't we just keep the beef here? And they could keep theirs over there. Well, I will tell you why. It's clearly because... <laughs> Cows on their deathbed often make a final request to see the world. They want to see the world, so we need to respect that request and stick them on a boat. You think about how many Japanese uh, cars are being driven here in the United States. You go to Tokyo, there's not an American car in mm. sight. Yes, why don't the Japanese buy our American automobiles? I don't, I don't understand it. it it's, uh, it's probably, probably just because of racism. The Democratic Party looks out for the losers in many cases. You well, guys are all the winners. Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I want to correct that. Boy, I'm surprised the president didn't want to sign on to that slogan Chris Matthews just came up with. Democrats, we look out for the losers. I mean, if you go through a small town that lost its main manufacturer, you know, and you, you talk to somebody who's 55, 60, 70 years old, and they talk about the loss there of community and sure. dignity of work, that's a hard thing. We can sell that dignity to Vietnam for a huge markup. I mean, 
Unfortunately, we reached peak dignity a few years ago, and from here on out, our dignity is going to be harder and harder to find and exploit. The question is, do we do it under rules where we can succeed, or we do it under rules that are set by China and we lose? We can do it under their rules, where we'll get punched in the balls, or we can punch ourselves in the balls with this trade deal and deny them the satisfaction. This is, this is a race to the bottom, and if we play our cards right, we can win it. Hey, Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. I just wanted to call to thank you for your latest episode um, that centered around transgender issues and Bruce Jenner. Well, I don't know if any other of your listeners can can relate to this, but I've, I've kind of been ignoring this Bruce Jenner thing because, you know, I've seen him on, like, you know, the magazines at grocery stores, and then I figured out that he was somehow connected to the Kardashians, and that's when I just pretty much ignored it because I don't really do reality TV. I don't really kind of waste my time with that whole sector of entertainment. And so I was completely kind of caught unawares by this whole situation. And and it is kind of big, and it's a big moment for transgender issues. 17 million people or 18 million people watching that interview. Um, I'm really glad it was handled well. And and I'm glad that you brought it up, because otherwise I wouldn't, you know, this whole thing probably would have just passed completely under my radar because of my personal interests in, in media. So I just wanted to thank you for bringing something that seemed to me to be a sideshow that actually had some, some depth and some substance to it. So I uh, just wanted to say thanks. All right, bro. Hope, hope all is well. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi, this is Scott from Brooklyn. I uh, just want to say I appreciate all the education here. I feel like we've been carrying a lot of heavy political weight lately. And uh, sometimes I feel like the show can be issue, issue, issue. And, you know, I almost get bogged down in the details. But then... You always pull out, veer away a little bit from the talking points with some of the big picture stuff. And that's what I really appreciate the culture capital of the show. That really resonated with me because I find myself for the first time in the employer position instead of the employee position. I'm a consultant who has finally reached a point in my life where I'm, I'm subcontracting out some of my work. For some reason, the whole process of uh, paying people has left an odd taste in my mouth. The last few clips from Richard Wolf have helped me sort of pinpoint that it's, it's related to that, the, uh, the value of production, value-added stuff that you've been talking about. Anyway, I just wanted to say I've worked in the nonprofit world, I've worked as an employee, and this is the first time I've really thought of employment in this way. And it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to be an employer with this frame of mind. I decided that during my next sort of lull between contracts, I'm going to really uh, reach out uh, to my subcontractors and and talk to them about maybe even developing a white-collar co-op. I heard about a bookkeeping co-op in New York, and uh, and it sort of changed my perspective on what co-ops are like in general. Co-ops, you know, at least to me, bring to mind a blue-collar manufacturing setting. And while those are great, you know, especially for communities that have been abandoned by traditional employment opportunities and definitely need to build community wealth. It always rang to me as sort of a hard sell to the American people because 
America doesn't see itself as a manufacturing base anymore. But uh, when you look into it, co-ops are all kinds of stuff. Co-ops are the retail, you know, your your standard sort of grocery store co-ops. They're they're banks. They're your your credit unions. But there's a lot of service sector co-ops and stuff. There's there's a whole bunch of tech worker co-ops that come together, and, and a lot of them are small businesses. I've been looking online and seeing it's just groups of five people getting together, and instead of forming a regular sort of partnership, they form it as a co-op and just have a different governance structure. So there's a ton of room for co-ops to be flexible and to be part of whatever the economy the future is going to demand. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that. I'm looking into it, and uh, I think other people also that that might listen to this podcast might think about that as a way of creating a governance structure if they're uh, starting their own businesses. And uh, there are places you can go to check it out. Uh, I like the Sustainable Economies Law Center and the American Worker Co-op there at American.coop. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I actually do have one more message for you that I'm going to play and respond to. This came in from a listener who uh, is responding to the Bruce Jenner episode, actually wrote an essay in response to it and recorded it. And so I don't have time to play the whole thing, but I'll play a bit of it and respond to it, and then the entire thing is linked up in the show notes on the blog. Hey Jay, this is Adriana, and I wanted to thank you so much for your episode on transgender issues, because I had some internal tension about this issue. I am an advocate for LGBTQ rights, and um, even though I am a straight woman myself, but I still felt, feel some internal uncomfortability about transgendered people. Just a quick interruption here because this message and my response to it is going to have a lot to do with language and the precise use of language. So I want to nip in the bud right here that the word transgender does not have an ED at the end of it. Being transgender is a state of being, not something that has happened to a person. Uh, Consider, for instance, that black people have not been blacked and gay people have not been gayed. Likewise, transgender people have not been transgendered. And listening to your show helped me clarify exactly in my own mind where that uncomfortability sits and helped me articulate it. So um, I got my thoughts together and I appreciate you listening to them. I am a woman. I was born a girl with two X chromosomes, ovaries, and a uterus. But the physiological facts of my baby girl birth are not the only pillars on which my womanhood is built. I am in agreement with social scientists who claim that gender is a social construction. This is exactly why I am in disagreement with male to female transgendered people who now claim that they are women like me. While I believe and strongly advocate that they are entitled to every right that I have, I do not believe they are women like me or any other born woman. 
Another quick interruption on the term born woman. I have never heard anyone use that term before. I think what you're looking for is assigned female at birth because no babies are born either men or women. They may have the sexual organs that are either male or female, but since we agree that gender is a construct and you know sex is what's between the legs, gender is what's between the ears, no babies are born with a gender. They are very usually assigned a gender at birth based on their sex, but that's different. So you don't want to conflate the two, and the phrase assigned female at birth is a perfectly good way of describing how a person is socialized based on their perceived gender throughout their childhood and beyond. Having breasts and a functioning vagina and even having the female mind is not everything that makes up what it means to be a woman. It is only half of what makes up what it means to be a woman. Outside of my physiological femaleness, my actual womanhood was created in the society and age in which I was raised. Men and women talk to little girls differently than they talk to little boys. My womanhood was being created in the very way that the people in my family spoke to me as a little girl. Had I been born a boy, they would literally have talked to me using different language than they used talking to a sister who was close to me in age. The language men and women use when talking to toddler boys and toddler girls actually makes a difference in the way boys and girls think. The difference in language use when addressing a baby girl or a baby boy reinforces gender stereotypes. I'm not saying it is good. I'm just saying that from an extremely young age I was being socially constructed to be a woman in ways so profound that they influenced the way my consciousness developed. My parents' expectations about me as a baby girl may even have influenced how early I attempted my very first act of independence, crawling. And this is how it is for all born women. We are not just our physical femaleness. We are also our shared lived experiences, which people who are born male simply do not share. Okay, so she goes on from there for about five more minutes, but what you heard is her basic thesis, and everything else is built on that foundation. So I think that's enough for me to respond from here, and the way I think is a great way of explaining sort of the confusion here is with an analogy, which I love to do, uh, between cis women like this caller and the trouble they have with trans women and heterosexual people who have a problem with gay marriage. And so, as we know, many oppose gay marriage on the basis that allowing same-sex couples to marry would, quote-unquote, change the definition of marriage. And then, you know, we can debate traditional definitions, but I prefer to just bypass that altogether all and say bluntly that, you know, if we need to change or actually what might be more fitting is expand the definition, then that's a small price to pay for recognizing gay people's human rights and making them actually equal. And so, I mean, after all, uh, as I've said before, language is supposed to serve people's needs, not the other way around. You know, if we have a word that doesn't do what we need it to do, then we can change the definition. That's how language works. So in this case, marriage becomes the umbrella term under which both same-sex marriage and opposite-sex marriage exist as subcategories. After all, gay people may say that they want to be able to get married to just like straight people, but they don't want to get married to a straight person. They don't want to get married to a person of the opposite sex. So it's not just like a straight person would get married. It is married in the same general sense. It's uh, Marriage is the umbrella term 
we each apply it differently to our personal circumstances. So similarly, those like this caller who are troubled by the idea of trans women claiming the title of women are using an unnecessarily restrictive definition of the word that doesn't allow for subcategories. In this case, the subcategories are women assigned female at birth and women assigned male at birth, or alternately, cis women and trans women. Trans women and cis women coexisting as subcategories of women takes nothing away from the womanhood, the societal conditioning, and the lived experiences of women who were assigned female at birth and were conditioned that way growing up, just as gay marriage takes nothing away from tr the tradition and the social implications and the lived experiences of opposite-sex couples. And in her message, she suggested later on that trans people should maybe consider just adopting a different label altogether to describe their gender. And she suggested this was sort of empowering. You know, why try to cram yourself into this small, narrow box to, you know, why why do you want to be called a woman when you could have the freedom to call yourself a, a third completely different thing? And she suggests this because they don't fit into her idea of what a woman is. They don't fit into her tiny box. And I would add that this is yet another parallel of the gay rights debate in which many suggest that gay couples should just be satisfied with civil unions. Why do you have to have it called the same thing? And my response to that is it is unnecessary and discriminatory and the reason that I think that is because trans people very often say that they feel like either a man or a woman rather than some third gender. And I don't think it's my right or anyone else's to tell them that they're not allowed to label themselves as they please. And the fact that trans people are a subcategory of their gender just as cis people are a subcategory of their gender is clear and it creates no conflicts or contradictions between allowing everyone to claim their own label as they see fit while also not stepping on the toes of anyone else's lived experiences. Now, the fact is, gender is really just more complicated than, than any set of boxes or rigidly defined definitions can really encompass. So we would all be better off if we could just let go of that and understand that gender is a far more nebulous thing, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, if your, you know, super logical mind insists on having rigidly defined definitions for words, well then at least consider allowing for subcategories of the definitions of your words, like woman or like marriage and so on. Uh, being a woman doesn't have to be defined as being not only assigned female at birth with female sexual organs and, and being socialized as, as a woman. It can be that that is the definition of being a cis woman. Great. You still have that definition all to yourself and you can keep it. And as long as you allow for a subcategory of trans women to be under that umbrella term of women, well, then you're not stepping on their toes either. They get to have their lived experiences. They get to have the way they feel. They get to label themselves the way they want. And everyone's happy. So those are my thoughts. That's basically how I understand it. If you know better than I do and I need to be corrected, please call in. Uh, I will definitely play your message and adjust my opinions accordingly. Uh, beyond that, a quick update on my Climate Hike fundraiser. 
we've met the 20% threshold, which is exciting. So thanks to Sari, John, Mimi, Amanda, another anonymous donation, Daniel, and Karen, who all chipped in, getting us up to 20%. I can feel the, the stone is being pushed ever closer to the edge of the hill, where it will then begin to roll down any minute now. So if you want to donate to the Climate Hike fundraiser, I've set an, uh, an incredibly high goal for myself, $5,000. It's more than I've ever tried to raise in a single fundraising effort for a charity institution. Uh, that's what I'm going for this time. Please help out. If you can, just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the giant climate hike banner. I'm hiking uh, dozens of miles over the course of several days through Glacier National Park, and it's all to benefit climate change nonprofits. Thanks very much to all of those who have donated and anyone who plans on donating. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained